Hey, I'm Sam. And I'm Lizzie. And we're queer people who love movies. This is Subtextual. Lizzie, Lizzie, Lizzie. Samuel Samantha Samuelson. Yes. I am so excited to continue this new thing we were trying that uh, you don't know what movie I'm talking about today, do you? I have no idea who you are. What's your name? (laughs) You look nervous. (laughs) (laughs) I am nervous. Why am I sweating? I don't know. I'm also sweating. It's because I'm excited. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, we've talked about this movie quite a bit, but I don't think Hmm. that you thought that we'd talk about it on this podcast. Ooh. Yeah. I'm tingling with anticipation. Do you want me to give you some hints? You want to try to guess? (gasps) Oh, yes. I love this game. Okay. You want to ask me questions? Um, Is it gay? We'll find out. <laughs> is it, did it come out in the last five years? No. Is it a musical? To be seen. Okay, so maybe a musical? Is it My Best Friend's Wedding? You son of a bitch. Shut the fuck up. It's My is- Best Friend's Wedding. <laughs> God damn it. The musical thing is such a clock, and I'll get into that later, but. I love, I, 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 I don't know if I like this movie. I love this movie, <laughs> and I fucking hate this it's another Let's one that go. you you love to hate. Yeah. Yes. Uh, my best friend's wedding was a long time staple in my household. I think I've seen it front to back like a million times. Same, girl. Mm-hmm. Same. If you were raised by a mother in the <laughs> 90s or early 2000s, you've seen plenty of this movie. Absolutely. Um, so a little bit about the production of this movie. It was released in 1997. Uh, It was directed by P.J. Hogan, who is not known for Hmm. a great many things. He's probably most known for the 2003 live-action Peter Pan film, which he also wrote and directed. The one with, like, that, like, blonde kid, Mm -hmm. and it's, like, kind of erotic between Wendy and Peter a little bit. Yeah, yeah, that one. Actually, I really liked that movie when I was a kid. And he also did another—his also next famous movie was in 1994 called Muriel's Wedding, Mm -hmm. so another— you know, wedding movie. He also wrote and directed that one. And it stars Tony Collette. So I, I really want to see it. But I've never um, even heard of it. It sounds cool though. Yeah. I'll probably watch that one soon. But um not too much to say about PJ Hogan. He um I think does a fair job in this role um as director for this film. So the plot of this movie is after years of friendship, Julianne realizes she's in love with her best friend Michael only days before his dream wedding. So she sets on course to split up the bride and groom. Wow, did you write that yourself? I did. That was very concise. All the other ones I found online were shit, so thank you. (laughs) Uh, So before we get into the breakdown of this movie, um, I just want to know, like, how do you feel about this movie? Do you have any (laughs) thoughts coming to the forefront of your mind right now? Yes. So I watched this movie a lot as, like, a kid, teen, young adult with my mom, of course. We loved spy movies and we loved rom-coms. But I watched this movie pretty recently, I would say in the last two years. Like, I think it was during the Pandolce. And I was like, wow, this movie is cracked up. Like, this is this is not a healthy movie. No, it's incredibly problematic. She's an, <laughs> an insanely toxic person. Yeah. And I remember I used to love the Julia Roberts character. But by the end, I was like, why do I like her more than Cameron Diaz? I think that's now something that we have time and space from. And, you know, we have women and gender studies courses under our belt <laughs> so we can understand why Julianne, yeah. uh, Julia Roberts in this movie kind of sucks. So um, just some theory. Um, oh, so love theory. I want to hit you with the theory of this because you might be thinking what probably everybody's thinking is, is this movie subtextual? There's a gay character, but is this movie gay? Because it's very hetero. Um, mm mm-hmm. 
And I don't believe that this movie ever set on a course to be subtextual or to make any larger comments on society. I think it was just like, it's a rom-com, it's funny, there's a gay man in it, women will love it. And they do. But um, they didn't anticipate us. They didn't see us coming about 20 (laughs) years later, bitch. (laughs) Um, So I don't even think that the director of this movie is even familiar with this term. But uh, have you heard of compulsory heterosexuality? No, I'm fascinated, though. You've heard of heteronormativity, but have you heard? (laughs) (laughs) It's cousin, Mm -hmm. compulsory heterosexuality. Is that right? Yeah, it's a difficult word to say. I was almost (laughs) not wanting to put it in this podcast because I was like, I hate saying it. But it's like a tongue twister, compulsory heterosexuality, compulsory heterosexuality. Oh, I'm pretty good at that. You're pretty. I might just (laughs) throw it to you and I need to say that word. (laughs) Be like, "Uh?" Uh, but compulsory heterosexuality is a term that actually preceded heteronormativity. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, so it was popularized in 1980 by a feminist essayist named Anne Rich. Mm-hmm. And the, I mean, it comes from this essay titled Compulsory Heterosexuality and the Lesbian Existence. Ooh, Ooh that's a good <sighs> fucking title. That's a great title. Yeah, it's a 30 page essay. And um, she goes on to say a great many things that I think still resonate for, for lesbians today. But um, the overall thing thing that she really wants to drive home is she states that women in every culture are believed to have an innate preference for relationships with men, and this leads Mm. women to devalue and minimize the importance of their relationship with other women. Mm. So she suggests that women are socialized to identify with males and to cast their social, political, and intellectual allegiances with them and are often discouraged from identifying with other women. Yeah, I totally feel that. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's similar to the term heteronormativity that that term came after and was directly linked to this term. Mm-hmm. But I think it adds this other layer of also distancing yourself from women. Mm-hmm. Uh, she continues on to specify that this experience more specifically relates to the lesbian woman hmm. or to the lesbian woman who is raised to initially identify as heterosexual right. in order to maintain status and power through you know, their male counterparts. So it's this idea of like straight until proven gay. Right, totally. So, so if you're a gay person— that's something that you have to go through a lot of experiences and come to terms with. And when you're born, everyone's just like, oh, you're straight. It's like you come pre-downloaded with all the like hetero knowledge and then you have to like take bonus courses to learn how to be <laughs> queer. Yeah, it's a DLC. It's like you have a, a like a bachelor degree in hetero BS and with like a <laughs> master's in queer studies. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I think that's, I just want you to keep that in mind um, while we go through this film because I want to be very clear at the front of this. I don't believe that Julianne is a lesbian, mm-hmm. you know, but I do believe that her extreme acts of heteronormativity can be better described as a compulsion. I mean, her. Her acts of heteronormativity towards Michael alone are almost like the motivation seems like it comes out of nowhere. She can't even place it. And then that juxtaposed with this animosity she feels for Kim. Right. And then also, if you kind of look at it from another direction, is she doesn't feel that pull to be romantic with George, even though he's a male, but it's because he's gay. We'll— Sam, you're preaching. Oh, what's God. the name of this motherfucking podcast, bitch? Uh, text you well. Uh, like I feel like there should be like a choir of people uh, like uh, listen uh. to what she's saying. <laughs> so keep that on your mind. Keep that in your mouth. Keep it in your pocket. 
compulsory heterosexuality? Yes. Oh, my God. You're so good at saying <laughs> that. Uh, so think about that while we jump into this film. So any thoughts on that before I move on? I think that's great. I've, I love whenever I'm presented with a term that describes something that like I feel to be true and understand as a concept but never had words for. Mm-hmm. And that's great because heteronormativity is a word that like, you know, we use a lot on this podcast and I understand as a concept, but in my mind more applies to the idea of hetero relationships and like any sort of relationship or lifestyle or family style being um, filtered through a lens that aims for heteronormativity. But what you're saying and presenting in compulsory heterosexuality, like extends more to like a single level to like a woman to another woman or a woman to a man Mm -hmm. in a way that isn't exclusively tied to like a romantic relationship. So I think that's great. I'm so curious. Let's go. And I think I might have found a way to re-like my best friend's wedding, because if she's just under some sort of compulsion, <laughs> she's under some sort of. I'll spell. be allowed to like it again. <laughs> I won't promise that you'll end up liking this movie. It might make you like it a little bit less, but that's fine. Yeah, you know, there's plenty of other movies out there. Yes. So we open on a dance number, and so that's why I said in the beginning, like, is this a musical? And there's um, there's so many different dance numbers in this film, and and musical numbers, I should say. That really begs the question, like, is this a fucking musical? It's kind of like if a movie has a single scene about Christmas. Is it a Christmas movie? Is it a Christmas movie? (laughs) If it has a single musical number, let's just say it's a musical. Yeah. Subcategory. It's in its own subcategory. So we open on a dance performance of Wishing and Hopin' by Dusty Springfield, (sighs) which is not the only Dusty Springfield song we get in this Musical. (laughs) But um, it's a very iconic scene. There's so many scenes in this movie that are incredibly iconic Mm -hmm. that it was hard for me not to show you all of them. But I think this one you can remember fairly well. It's like a pink backdrop. It's very feminine. One dancer is uh, in a wedding dress and the other dancers are her bridesmaids. And this is not important to the story, but I think that you'll appreciate this. The wedding dress worn by the principal dancer is the same Wedding dress worn by Rachel Green in the pilot episode of Friends. What? Yeah, I'll show you. What an Easter egg. I know, right? Oh, my God. I know this dress. Yeah, it's the one where she ends up sitting on the couch with, like, Monica and Phoebe, and they're all in wedding dresses. It's like an off-the-shoulder little harmony. And here's the picture of Rachel in it. Oh, my God. It's yeah. so good. It, it wow. probably very dates this movie. I mean, this movie came out in 97. Friends, the pilot, came out in that year, I think, as well. There was, there was just one prop wedding dress available Everybody <laughs> in Hollywood. Everybody had to share the same wedding dress. <laughs> it's also in, like, The Corpse's Bride or something. Yes, it's in every, <laughs> every fucking movie we talk about. Oh, I love that. So after this musical number, we meet Julianne Potter, who's played by Julia Roberts. And she's a very well-to-do, very established, uh, very successful food critic. And she's at lunch with her gay friend and editor, George, who is fantastic. We love George. He is he is everything in this film. He truly, like— He's the main character. According to me, yeah, I, I think he's the main character. So she's having lunch with George, and she goes to check her, like, messages on this comically large cell phone. <laughs> and she has a message um, from Michael, and George asks her, oh, is this the man of the moment? Because he's British, obviously. And she <laughs> says, opposite, it's Michael, my Michael. Mm. And she goes on to describe the— the romantic relationship they had while they were in college that lasted about a month, and she got bored of him and basically broke up with him right away. And ever since then, they've been inseparable best friends. So George asks if Michael is like 
Julianne, and Julianne says, no, he's just like you, only straight. Okay. So next scene, we're in her hotel room, and she's on the phone with Michael, and he has to ask her this huge favor. He says he's met someone who he plans on marrying, and if Julianne isn't there to hold his hand through the wedding, he just can't get through it. Uh, How does she respond to him being like, oh, I'm getting married? Is that something she already knew? Or is it like a surprise, a shock? It it comes as a shock to her because, you know, they've had this friendship and that seems like it's been flirtatious in nature. So I think right. she thought that was like starting up again. Oh. So when she hears that he's getting married, it kind of like throws her off kilter. She falls to the floor. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Literally throws her off. She falls to the floor. You know, every time you tell me something in the slightest bit shocking, I'm like, oh, oh, oh. like fall down the stairs. Uh, so he says that he's marrying someone named Kim, who is a junior in college. She's only 20 years old, and her dad owns the White Sox, so she's very rich. Mm. And they're getting married this Sunday. What's the White Sox again? Baseball? Hmm. It's a sport with men. Okay. She gets this news. She has to rush to Michael. On the way to the airport, George is driving her, and she says <laughs> to him, I'm a busy girl. I've got exactly four days to break up a wedding, steal the bride's fella, and I have no clue how to do it. And um, George doesn't seem exactly super excited about this plan, but she seems like the kind of person who does stuff like this all the time. He's like, all right, good luck, hon. Yeah. So they they kiss goodbye on the lips. Huh. And um, God, the 90s were so wild. I don't know what that is. Is that a 90s thing or do people do that now? You know, when Has I go, that always been weird? I think Americans never kiss. Like kissing is a romantic thing only, but like in Europe and South America, people be kissing hello, goodbye, how you doing, what do you want for breakfast? Hmm. And I'm like, we Americans just don't kiss on the lips as much anymore. Well, Julianne is one of the lip kissers. Lip kissers. Keeping the trend alive because she kisses a lot of people on the lips uh, platonically in this film. Uh, So she gets on her plane, she deboards, and we get that classic rom-com moment where she sees Michael through the airport and everybody's going in different directions and the wind is going through her hair and they smile and they cl- they hit each other really hard and she does her Julia Roberts like ha ha ha, ha. <laughs> <laughs> I do that out of total affection <laughs> so Michael is this is the first time we see Michael who's played by Dermot Mulroney hottie I disagree okay I have here second-rate <laughs> Sylvester Stallone. <laughs> He's in the family stone. Oh, yeah. I, I really uh, don't like him at all. Um, you know, they have this cute little moment, and then we turn and we meet Kim, who's played by Cameron Diaz. Also, another fun tidbit, Drew Barrymore also read for the part of Kim, but Cameron was selected um, after Julie Roberts suggested it to the directors. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Oh, Drew would have done a great job as well. I think so, too. I think so, but too. good job, Cameron. Cameron does a great job as well. So they're leaving the airport in Kim's convertible. She's a terrible driver. And she asked Julianne. Yeah, she's like 14 years old. Yeah, she just got her permit. <laughs> <laughs> so um, she's whipping around and she turns to Julianne and asks her to be her maid of honor. And Julianne says that she should promote one of her other bridesmaids or someone you've known for more than 25 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I agree. Uh, Kim says that her bridesmaids are the only two female relatives in her life who are vengeful sluts. <laughs> so <she goes> on. <laughs> wait, so, so wait, Kim doesn't have like any female friends? Or is that what we're led to believe? I, she doesn't go so far as to say she doesn't have any female friends. She seems like a very lovable person. Okay. So in my mind, I was like, maybe they're all doing exams or something at school. Yeah. <laughs> 
Or she's like one of those girls that like only hangs out with guys. She doesn't seem that way. I mean, Julianne reads to me more like the girl that only hangs out with guys. Right, totally. So um, she she turns to to Julianne to say, I've got four days to make you my new best friend, which is is sweet. <laughs> I really like him. And she's like, in her mind, she's like, and I've got four days to make you a fucking widow. Exactly. <laughs> a pre-widow. <laughs> uh, so they're at a dress fitting for her, her maid of honor dress. And it looks like Julianne is in a lot of pain to be in this like feminine environment. Julianne asks Kim what Michael has told her about her. And she basically says that she's been described as not like other girls, that um, Julianne is not concerned with things that are a feminine priority like marriage, romance, or even love. Mm. Which is also what George said, right? He was like, oh, is he like you or is he normal? (laughs) Exactly. So we already understand she's not like other girls. uh, And they get to the hotel and this is when Julianne's sabotage plan goes into play. Mm. And she gets Kim alone, and she basically starts negging the shit out of Michael, saying, like, his job is so crazy. You have to travel all the time. How are you going to finish school? Yada, yada, yada. And Kim says it doesn't matter to her. She just wants to be with someone that she loves. We quickly understand that, like, Kim is so adorable, and you can probably be a total bitch to Kim and she would probably still love you. Like, she doesn't take any negative energy from other people. Mm-hmm. And um, she's, like, this real kind of ray of life. She's very, like, genuine, too. Mm-hmm. They get into an elevator. Kim, like, leans into negging Michael because she thinks it's, like, this fun thing that they're doing together because she's so sweet. <laughs> At a certain point, as the elevator's going up, she hits the, like, emergency button and the elevator stops. And Julianne starts to have this, like, full panic attack where she's like... <sighs> and Kim tells her, like... I was so worried about you because you mean the world to him. Like, am I just going to be jealous of you for the rest of my life? And it looks like Julianne is going to like keel over and have a heart attack. And then she goes, and I've decided you win. He's got you on a pedestal and he's got me in his arms. And the elevator doors open. Julianne bursts through this like hotel hall into the vengeful sluts. <laughs> Cue vengeful sluts. Yes, and like all the, you know, silverware, what flies into the air, and she's on the ground, and she looks up, and they go, ha, ah, we're the vengeful sluts. No way. <laughs> yeah. They're like, we're claiming that shit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so they're fantastic. I wish we get to see more of them. We, we don't get to, but I, I think that they deserve a bigger part. Vengeful sluts, the movie. Yeah, so they meet. Michael at, like, a baseball game, I'm assuming. It's, like, sports. White Sox? Yes, at one of those. And Julianne gets him alone and begins to neg Kim, saying she's too young and she's too perfect. And, you know, like, are you sure you want to marry someone you just met? And he said, you know, the thing about Kim is that she's not afraid to tell me that she loves me. She's not afraid of all that yucky romantic stuff like someone else that we know. Whoa, she's like, my plan has backfired. Yeah, and Julianne says she's now comfortable with yucky love stuff. So she's she's changed is what she's trying to tell Michael. The next scene is also an iconic scene. It's the karaoke scene. I love this scene I, so, so much. I so badly wanted to show you this scene today, but I think the points of it speak for itself. But, um, I can also, like, press play on it in my head. Exactly. I'm betting on the <laughs> fact so that if good. you've seen this movie, you know this scene uh, in and out. But they all, all three of them, Michael, Kim, and Julianne, enter a karaoke bar. And Julianne's like, oh, I didn't know this was a karaoke bar because she knew that Kim doesn't like to sing. So she's doing this intentionally, like, to fuck with her. So they sit down at a table. Julianne just begins to nag both of them to each other. She's an asshole. 
And a host comes over and like puts the microphone in Kim's face. And Mike is like trying to get Kim to sing. And Julianne's like, stop, stop. She she clearly doesn't want to sing and like grabs the microphone and stands up for her to take her turn singing. And she goes, and now, ladies and gentlemen, for the vocal stylings of a Miss Kimberly Wallace. <gasps> and she like throws it to Kim. Vengeful bitch. That bitch. And you see Kim look like she's going to like. Oh, yeah honestly like cry oh my god i've uh, pressuring someone to do karaoke is so cruel i've been pressured to do karaoke and it's the worst it's me it's a mean thing to do and also um she's so bad at it she's so bad (laughs) so she gets up and starts singing i don't know what to do with myself by dusty springfield and she is terrible i have it listed here twice she is terrible uh and what's great about this scene is cameron diaz is actually singing this yeah terribly (laughs) terribly so sweet and um julianne sees that her plan is backfiring because the audience loves her and she thought it would embarrass her and she looks over to michael and michael is staring at kim like she's made out of gold yeah like his eyes are glowing i remember that particular shot yeah he's obsessed with her and so she kind of sits back julianne kind of sits back and is almost impressed with how perfect kim is so they uh they leave the karaoke bar they send kim away and um julianne gets michael alone and she's saying that like your job is so bad, you should just let Kim's dad set you up with a job. And he gets really offended by that. He's like, you've never had a problem with my job before. Kim doesn't have a problem with my job. She would never put me up to taking a a job from her dad. That Mm -hmm. would be like an insult to me. So they move into the next day. And so she's playing this opposite angle with Kim where she's trying to get Kim Mm. to talk Michael into taking this job because she knows it'll make Kim look bad. Wow, she's playing like... 3D chess. She's being a terrible She's friend doing the most. and a terrible person. I wonder what would happen if she just told him the truth, like, at this point. But what is the truth? Does she even care about him? Oh, that's a good point. Like, maybe she only cares about him now that he's off the table for her. Yeah. Because she kind of left, like, in the position of power, you know? Like, she was the one that broke up with him. He was obsessed with her. Mm-hmm. And now she yeah. lost She lost her stronghold mm-hmm. over this man. If you have someone in your pocket that's obsessed with you and they're all of a sudden drop you like a bad habit, like, I don't think that has anything to do with love. I think it's just your ego. Yeah, all ego for sure. So at the following lunch, they're sitting there together and Kim is like, why don't you let my dad give you a job? And they have a huge falling out. Michael gets up. He's like, how dare you suggest this? And Kim breaks into tears and she's like, I'm so sorry. You have to forgive me. You, you have to forgive me. And, you know, they, they settle it pretty quickly, but it was pretty hard to watch because, you know, Julianne is just sat there and she's not saying like, it was my idea. Like she's letting it. Does kind Kim of, make that connection? Like, wait, but Julianne told me this was a good idea. She looks to Julianne almost to ask her to, with her eyes, like, please save like, help me. me. Yeah. And Julianne says nothing. Oof. Not a good look. So it's going to backfire. Yeah. And so you're seeing her attempts to sabotage them become more desperate. And she's she begins to run out of steam later on when she's like putting it together. Like, why do I feel this way? Why am I even wanting to do this? But right now she's got like some more crazy left in her. Mm-hmm. A little bit more. Yeah. And she calls George, who's being beautiful at like a dinner party or something. And it hits his voicemail. And it's just like loud over speaker. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> she's like, George. George, you have to think of something. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, sorry, that's my crazy cisgendered straight woman friend. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so um, next morning in her hotel room, she hears a rap at the door. And it's George. She's like, I'm here to save the day. Honestly. And she goes, wow, you flew all 
this way even though you hate to fly, which really speaks to his character because she's being a hot mess express. Like, I wouldn't fly across the country if you were doing something this toxic, Lizzie. I love you, You but I won't do that. I know you have points. Don't play me like that. If it was free, if I had enough points, I'd do it. I wouldn't pay to do it. Maybe I'd put it on my credit card. <laughs> Aww, you love me. Yeah. You're my George. You're the George, my crazy-ass Juliana. I am, honestly. That makes so much sense. You have sense. forced me to do karaoke, so I guess you're also the George to my Kim. And then I also do break out into song in restaurants, so I, yeah, I think I'm George. You're George. Yeah. So he consoles her. And they have this beautiful intimacy about each other where, you know, he can take her makeup off and he can pull her hair back. And it's not even like a sisterly kind of love because it's more tentful than that. Um, You can tell that he like really, really loves her. Hmm. So at this point, he just stops Julianne from making all these crazy plans. And he's like, do you even love him? Or is this about winning? And she says, you know, at first I believed that he belonged to me. Mm -hmm. But now... I think he's the one for me. Oh, so she unearthed some real feelings underneath the ego? I don't know. You don't believe that, maybe? I don't believe believe that. I think it's what she needs to tell herself to continue to do these ridiculous things. But if they were engaged today and their wedding was a year from now, I don't think it would matter to her. Yeah, I think she'd push him away again. Mm -hmm. So George tells her that if she really feels that way, then she has to let Michael know. Yeah, totally. Completely agree. So there, she she goes to confront Michael at a suit fitting to presumably confess her love for him. But while they're speaking, they hear a commotion the other side of the store, and it's George who's like, drop something. <laughs> <laughs> and Michael says, who's that? And she goes, oh, that's, uh, that's, that's George. And he goes, well, what is he doing here? And Julianne says, well, he's here to be with me. And so we flip to George's perspective, and he hears, he sees them talking and, like, giggling, and he's like, wow. It's going well. It's going well. Oh, good for Julianne. She's so mature. Yeah, so <laughs> Michael and Julianne approach, and they shake hands really, like, wholeheartedly, and, and they both at the same time go, congratulations. <laughs> Julianne says, I told him, puppy, if we're engaged, we really shouldn't be ashamed of it. <laughs> So much crazy in that one sentence. I know. It's so fucking bad. And George is like, uh, okay. And Michael is like, so what'd you come down here for? And Julianne says, he just came in for a few hours to fuck me. (gasps) (laughs) You know, I got to give it to her. She she plays those cards. She plays them hard. George says, it takes a few hours. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I'm so tickled by anything George does. Ah, So good. So on the way to the dress rehearsal, Julianne convinces George to go along with his plan and pretend to be her fiance. And what I love about this is that she doesn't tell him to be straight. Hmm. She just says, just be my fiance, pretty much. And I think that he understands that she didn't ask him not to be gay. And he commits a little too hard to being her fiance. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I have, a, I have a scene to show you. Yes, finally. Well, uh, I guess it's just the way that you always talked about George. It always seemed, seemed like, um, it sounded like George was Gay. Common <laughs> <laughs> <a> misconception. 
<laughs> it is. Because, because George likes to pretend that he's gay. <laughs> uh, why would you do that? Oh, I find it attracts women. Indeed, yes. Worked for me. <laughs> Big time. What do you think about the clip that we just watched? I don't remember that scene. It's so good. It just, like, what an insane way to explain <laughs> that away. <laughs> and you can't tell if Dermot Mulroney, whatever his name is, Michael, believes it. Mm-hmm. But we're just going with it. We're all just going with it. We're all along for the ride. And he continues to overplay. They go to lunch with the the rest of the, like, wedding party. And he continues to overplay this role of a fiancé. But he's so gay about it that it's like (laughs) theatrical it's a shock that anyone believes this for a moment so they're at lunch and the people in the wedding party are obsessed with him because you know he's a very uh interesting person (laughs) and they um ask him how he first met julianne please julianne does not want him to tell any stories she clearly really wants him to shut up but he says that he met julianne at a mental institution (laughs) (laughs) He's like, you gave me a role to play and I'm going to play it. I'm committing to it. (laughs) He said that Julianne was at a mental institution to visit a friend of hers and that he was there to visit Dionne Warwick. (laughs) So he says, I said to Dionne, I'm in love. Could this siren love me? Are the gods so kind? (laughs) Dionne turned to me and said, the moment I wake up. (laughs) Before I put all my makeup. (laughs) (laughs) And they break into a complete musical number of Aretha Franklin's I Say a Little Prayer. And if you do anything and you don't want to watch this movie, just watch this clip. It fills me with so much joy. I think that's why I never want to swear off this movie completely because then I would never see this scene again. It's so good. It is so good. This, This scene is so joyous and it makes me so happy and it makes me happier knowing that Julianne is in pain during the whole thing because at this point she's a total bitch she's not singing this is not going and now she's stuck in this fake relationship yeah it's perfect karma is mm, and it's a it's a nice touch that he mentions this person in the mental institution as Dionne Warwick because Dionne Warwick actually does perform most of the songs like in the soundtrack it's the voice of Dionne Warwick wow it's a nice little throw to that full circle The um, music supervisor on this was like, got an eye on the details. (laughs) Dusty Springfield. Dusty Springfield. Dionne Dionne Warwick. Warwick. (laughs) Check and check. So after this scene, (laughs) Julianne sends this motherfucker home on a plane. (laughs) Bye, George. (laughs) She gets back into a car with Michael and she says, Michael, I've got to tell you the truth. George isn't my fiance. He was my fiance, but we broke up because he was so jealous of you. He couldn't compare to you, Michael. She's like, just digging that hole deeper. Just let's go. She's got a shovel and she's using it. Yeah. <laughs> and Michael said, to tell the truth, that it did make him very jealous. Not something you want to say before your wedding, sir. Uh-oh. I wouldn't say that. Where's Kim? Where is Kim? I miss Kim. I miss Kim as well. I need a movie where Kim is just picking out flowers or something. <laughs> trying cake. And she's like, oh, but they're all so tasty. She's like, let's have seven cakes. Um, so they have uh, Michael and Julianne have a romantic day out. And he begins to express his doubts about the marriage. You know, I just the cold feet that I think is kind of normal before you get married. And Are any of the things that he's expressing, any of the like little mind 
the little landmines that she's planted? Yeah, some of them are. So the, the idea that she's too young, that he doesn't know her well enough. Basically, he says, yeah, I mean, I know all of those things are true, but she's just, she's never been afraid to tell me that she loves me. And in that moment, there's such this like long pause where he's basically saying, you love me? Now is the time uh-huh. to tell me if you love me. Uh-huh. And Do you love me? Yeah. <laughs> Do you love me? You're playing your love games with me? <laughs> He's all Greg. <laughs> I'm all Greg. Sponsored by Espelon Tequila, not Bailey's. Um, so she doesn't make a move. She lets the moment pass. <sighs> so he continues to express his doubts, and he says, I just think it's weird because her and I don't even have a song. And he starts to hum, someday when I'm awfully low. And he, they hold mm-hmm. each other because they're kind of on, they're on like a boat. Of course they are. I mean, if I didn't pick, I didn't paint this picture at all, but I think you could presume they're on a boat. This is a very boat conversation. That's true. I kind of picture them floating. Yeah. So they hold each other while he's humming this song, which is their song, obviously. And yeah. um, it's a really sweet moment. It's like probably the best shot in the whole movie. Like cinematography wise is a pretty plain and simple feat, but this shot is really nice. Mm. So that's over immediately. And Julianne is back on her bullshit. She goes to Kim's father's office and writes an email from his letterhead, basically imploring Michael's current boss to fire Michael. Okay. And she's about to send it, and she's like, I'm being crazy. Like, the realization of how insane she's being. Oh, thank God. So this realization comes over her, and she's like, you know what? I won't delete it. I won't send it, but maybe I'll save it for later. So if I come back tonight, I can— send it if I change my mind. If I start feeling crazy again. Yeah. So she saves it for later and she leaves. And as her and Kim's father are leaving the office, he turns back and says to his assistant something. And he says, oh, I've got some emails laying around in my box. Just like send them out for me. So this email does get sent out. So Michael takes Julianne to the hotel room. And when they get there, he receives a fax that says that he's been fired. Mm. What is his job, by the way? Do we know? He's a traveling sports reporter. Gotcha. It's not really important. Just curious. Okay. But he's fired. It's, I guess it's important in the sense that he has to move around a lot. And that's yeah. one of the ways that Julianne is trying to manipulate right. him into thinking, you know, it's going to be a difficult well, It does sound like a fun job. It's a shame that he's now fired. That would be a bonus for me, but whatever. So he receives this news. He asks Julianne to leave the room and he goes to call Kim. After the phone call, Julianne comes back into the hotel room and he tells her that it's over between him and Kim And that he confronted Kim about the email and Kim said that she has no idea what he's talking about and that her father never sent it and he doesn't believe her. Right, because she already offered him a job and oh. Yeah. So he said that he's crazy for falling in love for someone that he hardly knew. Oh. And Julianne doesn't even look excited about this, but she's kind of like, well, it's all coming together. Damn. He says he's breaking off the wedding. Hmm. He's going to call it off in the morning. And so Julianne wakes up in like a frenzy and runs to the wedding grounds. And the wedding is like still, the brunch is still being put on. The wedding is still getting sat, like set up. So she finds Michael and she's like, what the fuck? I thought you're canceling the wedding. And he was like, well, I just haven't been able to find Kim to tell her. Like, can you go and find Kim? So. All oh, right. This is the 90s. Like no one had, like you had to call someone on a physical phone, I guess. And you're not supposed to see the bride before the wedding so it makes sense right, that we'll, they wouldn't we'll let him it. see her. I don't know. I love poking holes. I'll keep my fingers out of this one. So Julianne is set on this course to run in between Kim 
to send messages to Michael and then back and forth. So she's, so she's like, like a middleman. Yeah, she's physically like running across these <laughs> wedding gra- grounds to, to relay these messages back and forth. And so... Um, so she's had like a change of heart. Like she wants, like she wants to make things fresh. It's unclear. Like I think that she understands she's that like doing the most right now. Her motivations begin to change in the next following scene. So this is like the beginning of that. Yeah. And so she relays the messages not well, but not f- false mm-hmm. between Kim and, and Michael. And he eventually is like, "Tell Kim that it's on for six o'clock. We're getting married." So she goes back to Kim and. To her credit, she tells Kim the truth, and both of them get ready for the wedding. Mm. Uh, she goes and finds Michael again and pulls him into a gazebo because everything in the fucking late 90s, early 2000s had to happen in a gazebo. Gazebo on a boat. You gotta have it. Yeah. Here she finally professes her love, and so she says, choose me, marry me, let me make you happy. Aww. He doesn't say anything. He hasn't said a single word since he got into this gazebo. And she pulls him to her and kisses him. And it can't be a fucking movie like this shit if we don't pan over to see Cameron Diaz. How how does that—I'm not going to question that timing. Me neither. But Kim sees this whole thing, makes a mad dash, gets in her car, and drives off. I know. Yeah, so it's not looking good. Michael runs after Kim, shouting, please wait, please let me explain. So he gets in a car, is starting to chase Kim. (laughs) Julianne can't find a car. (laughs) She gets in a delivery truck (laughs) and is chasing chasing them through the city. And and she takes out her humongous cell phone to call George and tell him what's going on. Why did George leave? (laughs) I know. He's the only good person in this fucking movie. But he makes a very astute comment. She says, you know, I kissed him, George. I kissed Michael. And he said, did he kiss you back? Mm. And she was like, what do you mean? We kissed. And he was like, well, you know when someone's kissing you back. Yeah. She doesn't respond to this. And he says, like, well, what's going on now? And she was like, we're, we're chasing Kimmy. And he was like, so you're chasing Michael. Michael is chasing Kim. Who's chasing you? Nobody. <sighs> when your GBF starts dropping bombs like that on you. Yeah. You can't ignore that shit. If your GBF does n- no longer wants to partake in your shady, messy behavior, you know it's bad. You know it's bad. And he pretended to be straight for you for a whole afternoon. I know. He's at this point where he's like, you're fucking crazy. See you for lunch on Thursday. Exactly. <laughs> I want to hear everything later. <laughs> you're a crazy bitch. Bye. <laughs> yeah. So she follows Michael to a train station and basically says, I've been trying to sabotage you guys the whole time. And I sent that email. <sighs> and he says... Thank you. And she's like, what? And he's like, thank you for loving me that much. Sure. Okay. Right. I know. <laughs> Weird. And so Julianne in this moment has a change of heart that's unexplained, but she's like, I've got to go find Kim and I've got to make this wedding happen. And you guys are meant to be together. She's like decided in that moment for some reason. There's a bunch of question marks in my notes because it. That was not made plain to the audience member. But she goes she goes to a place where she knows that Kim will be, and that's the stadium. And so she goes there looking for Kim, and she wanders into a bathroom. And um, I'm going to show you the scene. Okay. We haven't talked about this yet, but I love Julia Roberts' hair in this movie. Who the hell do you think you are? You came here pretending to be my friend, and I made you my maid of honor. 
Who asked you to do that? You knew me, what, eight minutes? Michael trusted you, so I trusted you. You wanted to keep me close. You didn't trust me for a second. I was right. Well, of course you were right, but that's not my fault. You kissed him at my parents' house oh. on my wedding day. <laughs> Shut up. Now, I love this man, and there is no way that I'm going to give him up to some two-faced, big-haired food critic. <laughs> I love whenever she says big hair, she like flicks her hair. Oh, it's such a good telling off. Good for you, Cameron. Good for you, Kim. I I love the big hair comment. And you, you mentioned how much you love uh, Julia Roberts' hair in this. I think it's also funny... I'm talk I've been talking about casting a lot because this movie went through like a different a bunch of different rounds of casting, but Sarah Jessica Parker was also considered for this role of Julianne. Huh. And you can see it with the like hair and the styling that she would suit it very well, but she said no because of um Sex in the City. It wouldn't have worked as well with her. I agree. She could have been a good camp. No, I disagree actually. Yeah. Keep her out of here. We're not talking about the family stone anymore. I can feel <laughs> you trying to talk about it. Okay, but in the family stone. <laughs> So Julianne, after after Kim, properly sticks up for herself for the first time, says, I'm just as good as you, and I love him, and I'm going to fight for him. Julianne says, you're right. I-, I was really fucked up, and I shouldn't have done that to you. And if you let me ruin this for you, then you're going to miss out on, like, the man of your dreams. So she takes her back to the wedding grounds, and they get married. Work. And she's still the maid of honor. Like, she still walks down the aisle in a little dress. See, this is all the stuff, like, uh, Michael and Kim's kids are going to look back at the photos, like, 30 years from now and be like, oh, my God, y'all were so young and pretty. Wait, who's this? Who is the maid of honor? Why does she have an X over her face (laughs) and devil horns? (laughs) I could not enjoy my wedding if this motherfucker was standing right there. But would you, like, kick her out? I feel like I would want her around to be like, where the fuck is she? Keep an eye on her. Keep an eye on you. Hey, I tell the bartender, do not serve her any alcohol. She gets O'Doul's yes, and nothing else. Cut her off. <laughs> so they gloss over this very quickly. They get married. She's still the maid of honor, which I think is a bad omen. So the reception starts, and Julianne is not only the maid of honor, but she gives a speech. No. They should not give her a microphone. They should not give me a microphone. <laughs> they should definitely not give Julianne a microphone. Uh, she goes on to say some really weird shit. She says um, she's happy that her best friend has found the best woman. Gag me. Uh, and then she says, I didn't get you a gift. Of course you didn't. But this is on loan. And she gestures to the stage and the vengeful sluts take the take the mic and they begin to sing The Way You Look Tonight by Frank Sinatra. Oh, their song is on loan. That's fucking weird. No, I think it's cute. <laughs> I love a full circle thing. It's nice that it's a full circle, but... And didn't you say you want to see more vengeful sluts? <sighs> <laughs> I imagine us in the writing room doing this at like three or in the like, morning. <laughs> like, the draft is due tomorrow. You're like, you said you wanted the vengeful sluts. <laughs> uh, uh. You're right. It's weird, but it's also cute. Come on. I think, you know, after this, they get into their car and they go on their honeymoon. And I'm like, they must be talking about this shit <laughs> for the next week that they're in Hawaii. Because what? How do you enjoy yourself after all of this just exploded? <laughs> you, I don't know. 
It's not a good start to your marriage. That's no, for sure. it's a very bad start. So they take off. Julianne's at this reception by herself. She's looking sad and she's, you know, hot but sad. And she gets a call from her humongous cell phone and she <laughs> opens it and it's George and he begins to like console her. And he said, you know, I'd be prouder of you if you were dancing. And she's like putting it together. He said some other stuff about her dress and she was like, I didn't tell you the color my dress was. And she gets up and she starts looking around and and say a little prayer starts. Aww. He says, has God heard your little prayer? We'll Cinderella dance again. When suddenly the crowd parts and there he is. And it's George looking (laughs) super fucking hot with his cell phone. I know. He's so cute. Okay, that's the full circle musical moment that I really wanted. Yeah, and we get another one of those rom-com moments where they see each other through this crowd of people and they're the only people in the universe. And she's so happy to see him and he gets up and he really shows up for her. And he says, probably the best line in this whole movie, he says, maybe there won't be marriage. Maybe there won't be sex. But by God, there will be dancing. (laughs) (laughs) George is the best part of this movie. Yeah. He really shows up and like, he's like the, um, you know, when you're playing a video game and there's like that little fairy character that like comes into the game whenever you're like stuck at the bottom of of a ravine or something. And it's like, if you press A, it'll really help you out. Later, Mario. You're saying he's a Microsoft paperclip. (laughs) (laughs) You. uh, What what did I do before I had someone like you to understand me? To draw the, the lines in between all your dots. That's crazy. He's a Microsoft paperclip. He so they have a beautiful dance together, That's and so sweet. In this moment, I really think that we understand that they're soulmates. You yeah. know, they're meant to be, and um, the movie's over. But I, I think them ending on this note, and with the lens of us watching this with heterosexual, like compulsory heterosexuality in mind, mm-hmm. I think it's important to note that she let herself have a friendship with George because he was gay and mm-hmm. because she couldn't tie herself to his his male allegiance and gain any power. And by allowing herself to have a relationship with him that wasn't sexual or she didn't force to be romantic, she has such a fulfilling experience with him. And, mm-hmm. and they're meant to be together, but they're just not meant to be in love. Right. If, if she wasn't so driven by her compulsory need to be heterosexual— with Michael, who is straight, mm-hmm. she could have had just as much of a fulfilling friendship with him. Yeah. But it's almost like she can't let herself right. share that intimacy with him without it being romantic. Well, because the only side of herself she's presenting to Michael are the ones that her compulsory heterosexuality programming allows her to. Like, she'll tell George the truth. This is exactly how I feel, how I want to feel it, say it. You know, you're saying, like, he takes her makeup off, so he sees her at her worst, where she only allows Michael to see her at her best. So anytime she makes a mistake, which, granted, in this movie, she made some really fucked up mistakes, Mm -hmm. but it totally, like, cracks his view of her, whereas George is, like, just takes in what she's doing and then, like, gives her truth back, Mm -hmm. you know? Like, she's authentic with him and, yeah, really bitter in the ass. But, um, you know, at the end, friendship friendship is forever. Mm -hmm. And relationships are forever, too. Mm -hmm. But friendships are super forever. Yeah, I I agree. Like, she could have had two—she could have had three incredible friendships, I mean, including Kim. Yeah. She didn't even let herself consider that. Yeah, now what? She's never going to be able to go, like, visit them. 
No. And hang out with the three of them. It'd no. be weird. If I was Kim, I'd be like, you're never speaking to her again. Yeah, and <laughs> you probably want to break from her if for a while, if not forever. Yeah. Anything else to say about her dynamics and relationships in regards to compulsory heterosexuality, heteronormativity, or, or any subtext that you want to touch on? You know, I thought you did a really, really good job of going deeper into this movie that I truly thought had no other levels. And you really made me think about it. And now I'm really curious to go back and watch it because I wonder now, like, how does Kim fit into the compulsory heterosexuality? And we didn't really talk a lot about her, but maybe she is also kind of like George, like a little more free of it as well because she allows herself to be feminine and... Like, you know, when she gets up and sings karaoke, she's like her voice like cracks and shakes, but she's being her authentic self, even if it's, you know, she's showing her quote unquote ugly sides to Michael and she's not afraid to cry in front of him and to like plead for him and to apologize and to, you know, giggle and jump on him, you know. So she's not held back by those ideals like Julianne is. So a really cool and astute observation that you found there, Sammy. I, I really like this whole conversation has been really fulfilling. Thank you so much. Can I be honest with you? Yes. You do not have to keep this in the podcast, but I, I, I think at the, <laughs> for the sake of being honest, I was lying in bed with my girlfriend last night. She was so exhausted from work that, you know, when you're so tired, you're just, you're completely honest. You're like laying in bed about to fall asleep. <laughs> and she was like, what are you doing for the episode tomorrow? And I was like, my best friend's wedding. And she was like, is that gay? And I was like, no, but there's a gay person in it. And she was like, that doesn't seem like enough. <laughs> and I was like, I like woke up from my like sleepiness and I was like, she's totally right. And I was like, I've got to find the subtext here. And I've been completely reading about compulsory heterosexuality for the last week because it's coming back around on the internet a lot of noticing. Um, oh, interesting. Maybe we'll see it again. I, yeah, I'm, I'm sure films. now that we have a word for it and a mm -hmm. way to identify it, I'm sure that it'll come back around, you know, in, in more films, especially those of which that happen in the late 90s or previous, you know, yeah. because this, there's an idea with compulsory heterosexuality where people speculate that as being gay becomes more prominent in our culture, the compulsion to being heterosexual will become less because people will be born and be raised in a culture where they know it's not only heterosexuality. Yeah. It's not straight until proven gay. Right. You know, it's definitely something you see in older films and not so much now these days, but it's it's a nice lens to put on. Yeah, I think it, in films now, I bet you it's just more subtle, but I think it's there. Yeah. You know, the micro version of that. And mm -hmm. we're going to fucking sniff it out. And you know what? We shouldn't be limited on this podcast to only talking about queer things. So I think that, like, you can't have queer without the intersection of any number of the themes that come up in these fucking weird and good and bad movies. It is our we podcast. Yeah. We we'll do whatever the fuck we want. Yeah. I did two Kristen Stewart Christmas episodes in a row, In bitch. a row. You will not <laughs> limit me. <laughs> this is for us. <laughs> and if you listen to it, that's on you. Yeah. You press play, <laughs> bitch. I mean, ma'am. I, I mean, mean, good person. Yes. Good Samaritan. Thank you so much. Please, please continue to listen to this podcast. <laughs> Um, here's where I tell you how it was received. It was okay. generally well-received. The critical response was as much as you would expect for a romantic comedy. It ranked number two in its opening weekend, right mm. behind Batman and Robin. So yeah. obviously that's going to overshadow a bit. You know, it's a huge film. Um, it received one Oscar nomination. No way. 
for best original musical or comedy score. Shut the fuck up. So it is a musical. That's proof. Yeah. I mean, is it a comedy? Is it a musical? It's both. I think that they couldn't decide either. (laughs) So they probably like... The Venn diagram is like very oblong, almost a circle. Come on. Yeah. It's a musical. Okay, Lizzie. um, Any thoughts before we score? No, that was super fun. That was great. Good job. (laughs) Thank you. Snaps for Sammy. Ow. I use my JSTOR login for the first time and like... What's a JSTOR? It's the database where you get essays. You have that? Yeah. Yeah, shoot me your login. I need that. You didn't even know what it was. I need it. I'm like literally like hacking academic articles. Like I saw I found a JPEG of an academic academic article and to like zoom in and read it and like squiggle text. Oh no. Okay. Yeah. I'll give you my login. And I'll give you my canopy login so you can watch Swiss Army Man. Yay. Okay. Okay. On to the scores. Scores, scores, scores. On a scale of one to 10 overall, what would you give this film? Um, I'm going to say a six. Pretty solid. Solid. Pretty solid. I'm going to give it a six and a half solely for the musical numbers. And then now don't don't feel like you need to pump up the score because I gave you this whole women and gender studies rundown, okay? <laughs> you can tell me on a scale of 1 to 10 how honestly gay you think this movie is. No, you go first. No. I you. always go first somehow. As the host, I have to go after you. But I went first last time. Well, I, I'm the host and I say you first. <laughs> okay. Um, I mean, like a 3. All for George. That's literally all for George. He's fantastic. I agree. I'll... I'll I'll also give it a three. Three point five. <laughs> <laughs> I see a pattern here. <laughs> I mean, giving it a four is way too much. Giving it a two is way too little. A point five <laughs> would just be to throw it in your face. <laughs> but it would make it a whole number again. Don't tempt me with a good time, dude. <laughs> okay, wait, wait, wait. She loves decimals. So what'd you end up giving it? Wait, a five and a half? I mean, a three and a half? Just a three. Just a three. Ooh, this is bleak. Uh, the film comes in at about a 4.625. It's like a four and a half. Yeah. Look, hey, we didn't say it was perfect, and it's not gay enough. Yep. Just because we tell you about these movies, folks, doesn't mean they're any good. <laughs> <laughs> um, Lizzie, what, what, do you, what do you think? Any closing thoughts? What have you learned? I learned I needed George to keep me in line. Are you interested in the position? I will be your Microsoft paperclip, Lizzie. <laughs> Always and forever. Oh. Subtextual is hosted by Lizzie Guitro and Sam De La Fuente. Produced and engineered by Lee Garcia. Edited by Lizzie. Music by DJ No. 